Now our scripture reading. We're going to open up to page 834 in the Pew Bible, Matthew 27, 32 through 44. If you don't have a Bible, please take this one as a gift from us. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also their chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Anthony Emerson. I'm one of the pastors here, and I too would like to welcome you to Christ Community Brookside especially if this is your first or second time. Thank you for joining us. Excited that you're with us. And happy Palm Sunday. This is, as has been said, the Sunday we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which is fitting in our sermon series on the King's triumph. But this morning, as we come to the last few weeks of that series, we're going to be considering the triumphant and happy matter of the crucifixion of Jesus, which, of course, is the opposite of happy and triumphant, at least seemingly. Before we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, would you bow in prayer with me? Lord, we praise you for who you are. You are good, and you are just, and you are merciful, and loving, and I ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through this part of your scripture. We thank you for your word and ask now that you would speak to us through it. Amen. We use the phrase, it could have been worse, quite a lot. But sometimes it is worse. Sometimes it feels like it can't get worse. Too much has gone wrong. This is the worst. A number of years back, I got to go uh, one time with some friends uh, to a Chicago Cubs baseball game in historic Wrigley Field. Never been able to do that before. We were excited. It was going to be great. It was about this time of year and things began to go wrong when we got to the stadium. And it was cloudy in the low 40s and in true Chicago style, exotically windy. 
Our seats were literally in the top row of the nosebleeds with nothing but a warm and comfortable chain-link fence at our back. She did a great job of shielding us from the wind. It wasn't a good game. The fans around us were obnoxious, and we left the park disappointed and freezing. But the real fun began when we got back to our vehicle and found that we had left it running and locked. <laughs> it was not my fault. This was before most people had cell phones, uh, and none of us, of course, had one. So at about 11 p.m., we're wandering around the middle of Chicago trying to find a payphone to call AAA, which eventually we were able to do. AAA took three hours to arrive. By this time, it's 2 a.m. in the morning. We're waiting, warming ourselves as best we can by the car's engine because <laughs> it's late. It's in the 30s now, and we don't want to miss the AAA guy. And about an hour into our wait, car runs out of gas. And classic, it can't get any worse moment, it begins to rain. <laughs> True story. It eventually turns out all right, and we get home safely, but in the moment, it felt like it couldn't get any worse. Like we had found this is the worst, which of course we hadn't. Most, if not all of us in this room, have experienced far worse, whether it be rejection, loss of a loved one, sickness, recurring pain in our body, depression, whatever it might be. I know our brothers and sisters in Egypt must be feeling this way right now. Times when it at least feels like it couldn't get much worse, when it feels like this is the worst. And in today's passage, that's exactly what we are dealing with. We are not dealing with an unfortunate event. We are dealing with the worst, the worst moment in the Gospel of Matthew, the worst moment in all of the Bible, the worst moment I would say, in human history. This is literally the worst. But what is really fascinating about this text is that Matthew, the author, could have focused on the gruesome details of the scene. You would expect him to emphasize in emotional tones the tragedy and horror of the cross, the worstness of the situation. And while he doesn't wholly ignore the pain and ugliness of what's going on, his message focuses elsewhere. The message of his account of Jesus' crucifixion is that in the midst of the worst, the king yet reigns. In the midst of the worst, the king yet reigns. This is a powerful idea, and we're going to explore what it means for us. We'll find that in this passage, the king reigns in the midst of three types of worsts. There are three aspects of Jesus' crucifixion, which are the worst, and yet he reigns even in the midst of. 
We'll take a look at each of them and how they come to bear on us today. That's what it'll look like uh, today. And let me say at the outset, if you are a parent with a child with you right now, we'll be talking about some of the details of crucifixion. Uh, It's a small portion of our time this morning. Uh, And nothing extremely explicit, I hope, but I I do just want to give you a heads up for those moments. So firstly, in the midst of the worst weakness, the king yet reigns. It's the first type of worst that the king reigns in the midst of is weakness, powerlessness, helplessness. If you want to talk about a person in a position of weakness or helplessness, you need look no further than one being crucified. Crucifixion was about the worst, most torturous experience you could go through in the ancient world. In fact, our word excruciating means a pain like that of crucifixion. As if that weren't bad enough, the one being executed normally would be forced to carry their cross to the place of crucifixion. So when we see that Jesus, at the beginning of the passage, has just received this beating, this flogging, he's unable to carry his cross. They have to ask a man named Simon to carry it for him. We know that Jesus is already in an exceptionally weak state. But of course, the crucifixion itself is the worst part. Jesus is nailed through the hands and feet to a wooden beam, and while this, of course, is painful enough, what it did to you as you simply breathed was really hard. In 1986, an article was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that provided a medical explanation for the crucifixion process. It says, adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexing of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists about the iron nails, cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia. This is what Jesus experienced every time he went to take a breath. When his longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to again endure the pain of applying all of his weight upon the nails that were piercing his body. Eventually, he would run out of energy and die of suffocation. To say the least, this is a position of weakness, of powerlessness, But as we read Matthew's account of the crucifixion, he doesn't focus in on the crucifixion. He just mentions it in passing. He goes into none of this detail that we just discussed. In fact, Jesus isn't even the main character of this part of the story. Roman soldiers are. 
Read with me Matthew 27, verses 32 through 36. Every time the word they or them is used, it refers to the Roman soldiers. They're the main characters. It says, starting in verse 32, is they, the Roman soldiers, went out. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled, they bullied this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, this is the sum total of what Matthew says about crucifixion here, and then he gets on to his main point right away. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. What is going on here? Why is Matthew focusing on the mundane actions of nameless soldiers and not on Jesus on the cross? New Testament scholar Donald Hagner puts it this way. The attention is focused not on Jesus' sufferings on the cross, which, however, cannot be far from the reader's minds, but upon the activity of the soldiers at the foot of the cross who unknowingly fulfill what the Scriptures anticipated. The reason Matthew emphasizes the soldiers' mundane actions is that those actions fulfill Old Testament Scriptures and show that even in the midst of what is going on, the weakness that Jesus is experiencing, the powerlessness of Jesus in the face of these ruthless Roman soldiers, it's all part of the plan. And He yet reigns. Matthew, in detailing the wine mixed with gall that the soldiers offered Jesus, points to Psalm 69, verse 21, which says in the NIV translation, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And in narrating the soldiers' dividing of Jesus' garments among them by casting lots, he's alluding to Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is what he's focusing on. The Scriptures have anticipated this moment. Both of these psalms are about a righteous person who is persecuted, but who by God's power overcomes. The crucifixion, the weakness of Jesus is not a surprise. It is part of the plan. It is a central aspect of the king's triumph in the midst of, not in spite of, mind you, but in the midst of the worst weakness, the king yet reigns. And it stands to reason that in the midst of, and again, not in spite of, but in the midst of our own weakness and pain, the king yet reigns. In sickness and chronic pain and being marginalized or oppressed or unjustly treated, the king continues to be at work. The worst weakness didn't surprise him. Yours and mine don't either. He reigns in the midst of it. 
give a personal example. The time that I experienced God working most clearly and visibly through me was not while preaching a great sermon, which I hope to do one day, but when I was at one of my weakest moments emotionally. My grandmother had just passed away unexpectedly. I was torn up about it for a number of reasons. We were having a time of testimony at our church after a weekend retreat, about a week after she passed. Sitting there, listening to others share about their weekend experience, I had this clear sense of calling to talk about my grandma's passing. I did not want to get up and talk about that in front of everyone because, one, it made absolutely no sense and was unconnected to what was going on. And two, I didn't want to blubber in front of everyone, which I knew I would do if I started talking about it. But sure enough, I soon found myself standing in front of the microphone, words just came out about how I didn't know if she had passed away a a Christian or not, how I was wrestling with that. I cried, my voice broke, it was embarrassing, it didn't seem to really go anywhere, it wasn't like one of those powerful times when someone like cries and there's like a, it didn't go anywhere, It it was weird and I sat down. But as I sat down, I realized there is something different about the atmosphere in the room. Our pastor immediately stood up, not according to plan, with no segue, asked who wants to give their lives to Christ. So I was in a room of about 75 people, and a dozen folks stood up and committed their lives to Christ for the first time. I was in a place of weakness, of vulnerability. I did nothing other than probably get in the way a little bit, but Christ specializes in reigning in the midst of our weakness. It is in our vulnerability and powerlessness that He works best. So with your weaknesses, your pains, no need to diminish them but also commit them to Christ. Ask Him to deliver you from them, yes, but also ask Him to use them to work in the midst of them. And for us who don't feel weak, who can't relate with powerlessness all that much, don't be afraid to give yourself away sacrificially, to become weak for others' sake, in the midst of the worst weakness, the king yet reigns. But not only that, it's also true that in the midst of the worst shame, the king yet reigns. In the midst of the worst shame, the king yet reigns. It's one thing to experience weakness or pain, but it's quite another to have a sense of shame on top of it to add insult to injury. It's one thing to suffer righteously and nobly. It's quite another to endure scorn and mocking. That's the second type of worst that Jesus goes through on the cross. Crucifixion was not like executions today. Today, 
there's a small group of witnesses there to watch you die in a closed setting, and it's fairly quick. With crucifixion, you are crucified slowly in public. The Romans made the experience as shame-filled and as embarrassing as possible. So you were crucified completely naked in a place that was intentionally close to main thoroughfares so that the most greatest number of people possible would see. While this was not like the setting of execution by electric chair, for example, we have had a tragically similar modern form of execution, lynching. And theologian James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree quotes an eyewitness account of the lynching of a black man in Tennessee in 1915. And this is not pleasant, uh, but it is a part of our history that we must reckon with. It is an accurate picture of the shame involved in crucifixion. The witness says, hundreds of Kodaks clicked all morning at the scene of the lynching. People in automobiles and carriages came from miles around to view the corpse dangling from the end of a rope. Women and children were there by the score. At a number of country schools, the day's routine was delayed until boy and girl pupils could get back from viewing the lynched man. This is to say the least, a disgusting part of our history, as I said, is a reflection of how nauseating this crucifixion scene really is. This is what's going on in verses 37 through 44. Jesus is mocked by passerby, by the leaders of the Jewish people, and on top of all of that, even by the criminals being crucified with him. Read with me, starting in verse 37. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by, just passing by on the road, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So how in the world could it be said that Jesus is reigning in the midst of this, the worst possible shame? If you look closer at the text, you notice that Matthew quotes the taunts toward Jesus at length. Why does he make such an effort to record the horrible things that people are saying about him? 
because ironically, what they are saying about Jesus is true. They mockingly call him all the right things. He is the king of the Jews, like the sarcastic sign above his head states in verse 37. As the passerby say in verse 40, he is destroying the temple, his body, and rebuilding it in three days. He is the Son of God, as is yelled at him in verses 40 and 43. What does the author mean by including all this? means to show that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the King of Israel. It's just that these witnesses totally misinterpret what is happening. They think He's being crucified. He must not be the Savior. There's no way He's the King. So they mock Him sarcastically, all the while ironically pointing out the truth about Jesus. They don't see reality correctly. In the midst of their taunts, the king continues his work on the cross. He reigns in the midst of the worst shame. I recently watched a Chinese kung fu action movie series called Ip Man. There's an Ip Man 1, 2, and 3, all of which are pretty good. This image that will come up on the screen is from Ip Man 2. And I think this movie is fascinating because in true Chinese form, it's all about shame and honor. This arrogant British boxing champion comes over to China for an exhibition match and ends up mocking the Chinese art of Kung Fu. So someone has to defend the Chinese spirit and culture and it ends up being Ip Man. This is the second movie in the series, so you already know that Ip Man is awesome at Kung Fu, and that the boxing champion, while formidable, doesn't know what he's talking about, really, with his mocking and his insults. And this is the central truth of any shame that comes the way of the Christian Whoever is taunting, whoever is scorning the Christ follower simply isn't seeing reality the right way, isn't understanding what's really going on. What's really going on is that God the Father values and loves you beyond all measure as His child, and He is slowly but surely forming you into perfection. By grace through faith, your destiny as a child of God is glorious resurrection life enjoyed in His presence. Regardless of what your past is like. So don't pay too much mind to those who wish to shame you, especially when that person is yourself. And don't be afraid to live out and to share your faith with others, even in the face of potential mockery. Jesus said earlier in Matthew that blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, he says. He could say that because in the midst of the worst shame, the king yet reigns. We've talked about weakness. We've looked at shame. And the final type of worst that Jesus experiences on the cross is death itself. And even in the midst of the worst death, the king yet reigns. How can that be true? Because remember, we're not saying in spite of death he would be raised to life. That would be the easy answer. And it's all great. We are saying in the midst of death, he's reigning. How? There are a number of signs of Jesus' kingship that Matthew points to. The unnatural darkness in the middle of the day in verse 45 is one. But right when Jesus dies, there are a number of serious apocalyptic signs that were foretold in the Old Testament that take place in succession showing that Jesus' death is not the death of just some random criminal, but is an event that alters reality. This isn't a normal death. In the midst of this worst of deaths, something is happening. And the Roman soldiers come to the logical conclusion about what is happening at the end of this passage. Read with me in Verses 51 through 54. Jesus has just died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus' death is what most clearly marks him out as king, the Son of God. But it is not just earthquakes and curtains that display Jesus' kingship in the midst of his death. It is above all his lone piece of dialogue in this passage. There's only one thing he says. It's what he says on the cross that explains to us how Jesus reigns even in death. Verse 46, it says this, And about the ninth hour, meaning 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, this word translated cried out is a visceral, agonizing word. You might also translate it as shriek. 
This is Jesus crying out, shrieking desperately. Jesus has been strong and stoic all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, right up to his trial, his conversation with Pilate, even in his being beaten and crucified. He's been calm and collected. But now the one thing that could make him fall apart happens. His daddy abandons him. J.I. Packer explains, On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before, all sense of his Father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him, and in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. This, ultimately, is death. Separation from God. Separation from the source of all love and life. That's literally hell. That's why Jesus' death is the worst death. Crucifixion was horrific enough, but other people went through it. But on the cross, God the Son is separated from, abandoned by God the Father. And He shrieks. But in the midst of the worst death, the King yet reigns. This abandonment by the Father that Jesus endures The worst of deaths is the precise moment of his greatest triumph as king. It is why an earthquake occurs. It is why the curtain splits. It is a triumph because he died as a substitution for you and me. He took our place. It is you and I who deserve this worst of deaths because of our sin. It is you and I who deserve to be abandoned by the Father because we have time and again rebelled against Him. It is you and I who deserve the cross. But out of love, He sacrificed Himself for us. He substituted Himself on our behalf He paid the price for our unrighteousness on the cross in the midst of the worst death. Jesus secures the forgiveness of our sins. He has won us eternal life with God. He was abandoned so that we might never be. Praise be to God. He accomplished His ultimate purpose on earth in the midst of the worst death. The King yet reigns. So whether it is weakness or shame or death, in the midst of the worst,
the king yet reigns. That was true on that day 2,000 years ago, and that remains true today. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, because of the gospel of grace, we can say one final thing as we close. We can say that in the midst of our worst sin, the king yet reigns. We all are sinners, but in our midst this morning, Christ reigns from the cross, offering full forgiveness of sins and abundant life with Him. So today and day by day, keep your eye on Him and trust Him in the midst of the worst. Because right there in the middle of it, He's reigning. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for dying in our place on the cross out of love. Thank You for Your grace. We ask that You would help us to keep our focus on You, especially when we're in the midst of the worst. Help us to trust you, draw us closer to you. In your name, amen.